So we're going to wrap up our, our series of messages about gardens or trees or vineyards or orchards, uh, this kind of Lenten theme. We've been looking at, at plants, um, and we remember the, uh, the, the reason for so many of these stories in the Bible is because people were farmers. People understood, or their, their neighbor was a farmer. They understood God better when God reasoned with them in terms of, of gardens. So we're going to look today at one last uh, garden message. Um, next, next week we will, we will conclude um, the, the idea of gardens as we wrap up in, in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. But today we're going to look at one more passage involving um, uh, a tree. And it is, of course, the tree, the cross. Um, and uh, today we're going to look at uh, uh, why it is that, that the scriptures talk about the tree or the cross. Um, and um, uh, uh, the the passage we're looking at here in Acts 10 is one of one of those places in scripture. If you're kind of wondering what you know, kind of boil it down for me, condense, you know, give me the nutshell understanding of what. It is that God's doing. What is what is the gospel today? You know, you've probably seen it in a football stadium or someplace. The John three sixteen, you know, uh, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that whoever believes in Him may not perish but may have eternal life. Um, that's that's the the shortest way of boiling down the gospel that that I can think of. But this little passage, Peter's speech in Acts ten, is another one, and it is interesting because already in the time uh, when Peter was still alive. Uh, that was the way he chose to condense the message of the gospel. So it's an interesting passage in its own right. But today I want to look at it, um, not because it's an interesting summary of the of the gospel, but because in it there is one of the greatest aha moments in in the Bible. I don't know. Do you um do you know aha moments? The eureka, the 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 moment of clarity where everything kind of clicks into place and suddenly you understand something in a new way. That's not really my experience. I don't, I don't have a lot of those. I can't think of many. Um, uh, I'm more of the kind of the, the slow and steady, uh, uh, kind of gets you eventually you get dragged across the finish line. Um, uh, that's, that's me. I remember when I was in college, there was a class called CS342. It was, um, on, uh, finite automata theory. So, uh, that may be very helpful to you to know now, but, um, but it was, it was this, it was deadly class. I have too many sermon illustrations that come from that class. But, um, but, uh, there was a guy down in the front named Daryl. And he was one of the guys who'd sit there. He wouldn't even be taking notes. He'd be kind of lounging on his chair, having a conversation with the professor. And, uh, he'd say, but, but wouldn't that, you know, cause this thing? And, you know, he's having this back and forth. And the, and the rest of us, or at least me, are furiously scribbling, hoping that this will eventually come together somehow. I never had those, Big moments of clarity in that class, and it always—I always took it as a personal comment to me because the professor would sometimes say, "Take it home and convince yourself," um, and and you know, as you do, reams of homework. So so that was how I convinced myself. I didn't have a lot of of um, big moments of clarity, those big aha moments, um, uh, and I still don't today. And, and maybe that's why I like Peter so much. As as we read the stories about Peter in the in the Bible, we don't see him having a whole lot of uh, aha moments. So this one is one of the places where he actually does. He has this aha moments, and it's about about who it is that God saves, who God saves, and why. I don't know. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered who it is that that God saves? Um, maybe you've wondered about it yourself. Maybe there's somebody you know, and you've wondered, could God save that person? You know, we have this phrase, or we have this word, God forsaken, right? It literally means 
forsaken by God, uh, beyond God, uh, someone or something or someplace. You've heard about a God-forsaken town, maybe, or or somebody describes something as a God-forsaken monstrosity, right? And and does that actually mean something? What does it mean to be God-forsaken? Are there people who are beyond God? You know, you you think of you know the obvious candidates are you know Hitler or or Stalin or Joseph Kony, and you say you say you know are they forsaken by God? Are they beyond God? Or maybe instead of thinking about you know these kind of world class bad people, you think about somebody else. You think about uh, somebody you know, somebody that you wonder you know is that person beyond God? You know because they keep doing that thing or they keep having this problem or 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 you know God doesn't approve of that kind of thing and you wonder are they beyond God? See for Peter that was an easy an easy answer. He could answer that question right away. He'd been taught from the time he first was a little kid hearing about God that of course there were people who were beyond God. There were two kinds of people. There were the people that God loved, the people of God, and then there was everybody else. There was the the nation of Israel, the the people whose religion was Judaism. They were the people that God loved, and everybody else was beyond God. So for Peter, it was an easy question. And um, for for him to, to, to come to this insight, he had to challenge that idea that there are these two categories, the people that God loves and the people that God doesn't. So uh, we're going to look at this passage today. Now, in context, uh, there's a whole lot of... Uh, uh, this is a great passage of Scripture, um, uh, Acts 10. I commend it to your study. Take it home and convince yourself. But but um, we're going to look just at the, the, the kind of the conclusion of it. But in context, what, what, what has been going on is two different people have had visions. Um, a, a Roman officer named Cornelius has had a vision, and Peter, uh, who was an, a leader in the early church, he's had a vision. Peter's is very complicated, and they repeat it several times throughout the book of Acts because it's an important vision. Um, uh, and it's too long to summarize. Uh, Cornelius's vision is much shorter. Cornelius's vision is, hey, God has been listening to your prayers. God's going to answer your prayers. Send for Peter. So he's got a nice, easy uh, uh, vision, and so he does. He sends some people from his household staff to go fetch Peter, and right as Peter is wrapping up his vision and kind of puzzling over it, the door knocks, and it's the people that Cornelius has sent. So that's where we pick it up. Um, they they bring Peter to Cornelius's home, and as he's walking along, Peter is wrestling with this vision he's had, and the pieces are beginning to fall into place, and we pick it up here in verse 34, right after Peter has had this insight. So he says, he says, Peter, Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand. I have, I got it. Now it's all clear to me. I truly understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Not just the nation of Israel, but any nation, any group of people, any any collection you can imagine. He says to them, and now this is the part where he summarizes the gospel. He says, you know the message he sent to the people of Israel. You've heard about it. doesn't apply to you, but you've heard about it. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. So you've heard about this message, that God has announced peace to people, but uh, you've never thought of it as applying to yourself. You've only thought of it as applying to 
the nation of Israel. And he says, that message spread throughout Judea. Well, actually, it began in Galilee, but then it spread uh, uh, through, through Judea. It began in Galilee after the baptism that John announced. When, when Jesus was baptized by John, the Holy Spirit came down. God anointed him uh, with the Holy Spirit and power. And because God's power was with him, Jesus went around first in Galilee and then in Jerusalem and finally in Judea, uh, in Ju- Galilee and then Judea. Judea is the southern part of Israel. And then finally in the city of Israel. Uh, this, I'm going to take that from the top. He started in the northern part of the country in Galilee. He went down to the southern part of the country in Judea. And he wound up finally in Jerusalem. Um, so he says, you, you know about this. He did all these things. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. So uh, the oppressed by the devil, that's a shorthand way of saying um, every type of illness, uh, uh, everything, everything up to and including the worst, uh, oppression by devil. So he, he did cure some hangnails, but he also cured some stage four liver cancer. Okay, everything in between. Okay, Jesus did good, and he healed everything right up to the worst cases. Okay, because God was with him. He says, how do I know this? See, for me, it's not just a message that I've heard through the grapevine. He says, we are witnesses to all that he did uh, from, from that very beginning up in Galilee, then into Judea and in Jerusalem. When he got to Jerusalem, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. We'll come back to the tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear. Uh, but he didn't appear to everybody. He appeared to the us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. See, if you think about it, the people who saw Jesus when he was in Jerusalem didn't know him, right? Pontius Pilate, the, the high priests, uh, the people in the crowd, they didn't, know, they didn't know Jesus. He showed up from out of town. He's in Jerusalem. They see him get uh, uh, killed on the cross, but that's all they know. Instead, God causes Jesus to appear to people who actually knew him, people who had been part of his ministry for the past three years, uh, people who knew the way he held his fork, and they ate and drank with him. And so they said, I saw him before he died. I saw him die, and I don't know how it is, but I know that that's really him. I know that that's really Jesus, because I know who Jesus is. He says, we're witnesses, and God called us to be witnesses. But he didn't say, you get this special vision and, you know, just hold it to yourselves. He said, he commanded us to preach to the people and testify he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So he concludes by pointing out the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament, we looked at two passages from the Old Testament today. Uh, there's there's the the big section of the Old Testament called the law. There's another section of the Old Testament called the prophets. And he's saying, he's saying, this all points to Jesus. He says, he says that, that in the Old Testament, there's parts of the, the, the law that tells you what you're supposed to do. And unfortunately, not everybody obeys it. So the prophets talk about a time when there was going to be the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is when God was going to get even. God is going to sort things out, fix everything that was caused, all the damage that was done when people didn't do what God told them to do. Now, some of the more astute prophets came along and they said, you know, that's actually not going to be very pleasant for you. People like Amos, Amos, who we read, he said, he said, alas for you who desire the day of the Lord. 
Why do you want the day of the Lord? It's darkness, not light. It's like you're being chased by a lion and then you meet up with a bear. He's saying, you don't want the day of the Lord because who is righteous? Who can stand before God? Nobody can stand before God. So what's the solution? Well, up until now, Peter has understood what Jesus did as being uh, tied up with that tree. He knew that Jesus got crucified. He knew Jesus was crucified. And so he thinks back to the Old Testament passage from, from Deuteronomy we read that was talking about capital punishment. In the Old Testament law, it said there were certain crimes that were so offensive that the only punishment was death. And so it said if somebody does a crime that's punishable by death, what you do with them is you execute them. Now, for us, execution happens in a faraway place and, you know, it's in a building and you hear it read it in the newspaper the next day. For people in the olden days, they would do executions publicly because it was a lesson to other people. When you saw the body hanging there, you said, I'm not going to do that, whatever he did. So in the Old Testament, there's a law that says if somebody is executed, don't do that. Don't use their body as a teaching lesson for other people. Take them down. Don't leave them there until the animals take, take them apart. Take them down and bury them. So even where there's the worst type of crimes, there is this idea of mercy that moderates it. So that's what the Old Testament says. But it says very clearly, anybody who is um, hung on a tree is under God's curse. So Peter's sitting here and he's going, how, does the, how can I put this all together? How can I make sense of this all? I was a witness. I saw the Holy Spirit descend on this man. I saw him go about the countryside doing good, healing people because God was on him. And then I saw him hung on a tree. And anybody hung on a tree is under God's curse. So he's saying, how can I make sense of that? And then he says, oh, okay, wait a minute. Because I also know the day of the Lord is a day of darkness. It's a day to be feared. It's not that God's going to come show up and pat you on the head and say, there, there, everything's wonderful. Instead, God is going to punish all wrongdoing. And so what Peter does is he says, oh, I get it. He says, the curse doesn't land on me. It lands on the good man that God sent, Jesus. He says, ah, so I don't have to fear the day of the Lord. I can be saved. And then he says, but wait a minute, Jesus is Lord of all. Lord, He's not just Lord of the Israelites. So when he saves me and he saves my brother and he saves the other disciples and the other Jews, he's not just saving them, he's saving everybody. He's saving the whole world. He is the Lord of all, so he is the Savior of all. So Peter has this insight where he puts all the pieces together, summarizing the entire gospel, what it was that Jesus did. He died on the cross so that others wouldn't suffer the curse. He took the curse on himself. And because of that, everyone can be saved. I think sometimes it's easy for us to see other people and say, well, I don't know if they could be saved. Now, my sins are not so big, right? Or they're so far back. This Thursday, I mean, come on, right? Or they haven't happened yet, okay? So they don't count. So we say, well, it's pretty easy to understand why God would save me. But I can understand that other person. He ripped me off. He, he wouldn't believe what he charged me for that car. Okay? He's a sinner. I don't see how God could possibly save him or, or the historic figures, you know, the Hitlers and so forth. We can look at other people and say, well, 
I, I can understand why God couldn't save them. Peter is saying, no, God can save them too. That's what it means that Jesus is Lord of all. He is Lord of all and is Savior of all who trust that he can save them. So, what do we do with that? In Peter's day, what Peter did is he said, oh, okay, I got it. So he doesn't just save religious people, he also saves sinners. He saves tax collectors and prostitutes along with the Pharisees and the scribes. Yeah, okay. He doesn't just save Jews, he also saves Romans like Cornelius here. He goes, oh, okay, wow, that's really different. So what is that for us? What is the equivalent thing for us today? What does it mean that Jesus saves everybody? Jesus saves everybody. It means, means you're not, there's nobody who's too, too old or too young to be saved. There's nobody who's too sick or too healthy to be saved. There's nobody who's too educated or uneducated. There's nobody with any problem, any difference that they can't be saved by Jesus. Means the people you see in church every Sunday and the people you'd faint if you saw them in church. It means the people with addictions, and the people who are greedy. It means the people that you would never expect can be saved by God. Peter says, I truly understand everyone who believes in him, everyone who puts their trust in Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone. Thanks be to God. Amen.